Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and I'm a science communicator, which means that I make live shows, radio shows. I have my own podcast called The Cosmic Shed, where we explore science through science fiction. And as you may know, I've hosted this podcast a few times before as well. But this one is a little different. I'm often reading the science news, uh, looking for inspiration for a project, sometimes just finding out what's going on, or trying to avoid the main bit of the news sometimes. And occasionally a story comes along I just can't let go of. Just before Christmas 2016, I was reading physicsworld.com, and one of the Flash Physics articles had a story about radioactive diamonds as long-life batteries. Radioactive diamond batteries. I have to admit that nuclear physics, diamond formation, and to a certain extent batteries are not really my areas of expertise. That said, I, I don't actually think that you need to have a PhD in every area of physics in order to understand it, to enjoy it, and be inspired by the work that's being done. When I read a science story, and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast you're the same, I approach it with a sort of sceptical optimism. There are a few questions I need the answers to. You know, how reputable is the research? You know, has it been published? Or where has it been published? And what have they actually done? How far from what the scientists and researchers have actually achieved is what is being reported in the press? I, obviously I wasn't alone being grabbed by this story it was in newspapers not just the science press not just the science interested twitter users you know it it captured a lot of people's imagination and it's not hard to see why and at physics world it was covered by hamish johnston so i headed over to physics world met up with Hamish and asked him what it was that had attracted him to the story. It's a fantastic story. It's, um, you know, it's, it's about dealing with nuclear waste. Nuclear reactors produce lots of radioactive carbon and um, these researchers have figured out something to do with it. Basically what they do is integrate it into a diamond so that the, the radioactive waste is embedded deep within the solid. And um, that solid gives off electricity. And so essentially you have a battery that will run for thousands of years because the half-life of the radioactive carbon is thousands of years. And apparently, um, once the radioactive material is embedded into the diamond, the diamond itself is no more radioactive than a banana. So at this point, I get really excited. The idea is that waste from nuclear power plants can be used to create diamond batteries. Carbon-14, a radioactive isotope, is created in the graphite blocks which house the uranium at nuclear plants. So effectively what happens is some of the carbon-12 on the edges of the graphite blocks gets turned into carbon-13 as a result of the nuclear fission taking place in the reactor. And in turn, some of that carbon-13 gets turned into carbon-14 and carbon-14 is radioactive. That's bad news if you want to store it. But now, it's apparently potentially great news if you can safely use that radioactivity to create batteries. And that's exactly what Professor Tom Scott and Dr Neil Fox at the University of Bristol are proposing. I'm Tom Scott, I'm a Professor of Materials. I'm Neil Fox, I'm a Reader of Materials for Energy in the School of Chemistry and the School of Physics. So I was meeting Tom and Neil in the David Smith Building at Bristol University, which is also known as the South West Nuclear Hub. I'll be honest, I didn't know we had 
a nuclear hub here in Bristol. Um, it's all sorts of amazing nuclear research going on in there. As soon as you walk in, you get a very warm welcome. It's a very friendly place, actually. And Tom and Neil were keen to stress that the project itself is a very collaborative one. We've been working together for about 10 years now. So we've known each other a long while and we've worked together on, on a good number of projects. So this latest project on the, on the diamond uh, devices is, is just one of a series that where we've been building up to this point where we've got this technology that we're, we're developing towards commercialization now. Uh, we need a very broad skill set. Uh, so it has to be an interdisciplinary effort. So we've got uh, engineers, chemists, physicists. Now, I don't know about you listening to this podcast, but I think I could probably live for about 5,000 years and never come up with the idea of radioactive diamond batteries. Unless I was playing Cards Against Humanity or something, I suppose. But I was wondering how an idea like this comes to mind. We were running a couple of projects at the same time. One was about understanding the distribution of radioactive carbon-14 in reactor graphite. And then there was a, another program that Neil was running, which is based on using diamond as a wonder material for the development of thermionic devices, which are usually used for powering long-distance spacecraft. And we had a sit-down discussion with a company that was interested in sort of military tech and power sources about whether it would be possible to develop a new type of power cell for a very small submarine which didn't have any moving parts, didn't make any noise and therefore was really difficult to detect. They, they talked to us about, at the time about using krypton, which is usually a radioactive gas, and compressing it to form a liquid and that would be the power source and then you'd have to use diamond to harvest that, that radiation and decay energy to form electricity. And that set us off. And, and Neil did most of the calculations, but it turned out that you, you, could, you could make a device like that, but there wasn't enough radioactive krypton in the world to make more than one and a half power cells. <laughs> okay. uh, so, so the company sort of went away, you know, not, knocked that one on the head. Um, but Neil and I subsequently sat together and said, we do in the UK have 90,000 tonnes of irradiated graphite, where most of the radiation is coming from carbon-14, which is this radioactive isotope of carbon, and it's a, it's a beta decayer. And a, a beta particle is essentially a really high-energy electron. And within the diamond structure, you can absorb that beta particle and convert it into a cascade of lower-energy electrons to form electricity. And, and that's how we started the project. That was our inspiration, really. Before we get into the intricacies of how these diamond batteries work, here's Professor Tom Scott again, uh, just with a little recap on how nuclear power stations work. A nuclear reactor that generates electricity is basically a, a, a source of heat to boil water and turn that water into steam and the expansion associated with creating that steam is used to drive a turbine which generates the electricity. But it works on the same principle as a coal-fired power station which is just another form of heat to boil water. Um, but in, in creating that heat what we're actually doing is we're splitting very large heavy atoms or what we call fissile isotopes which is principally uranium-235. And in the process of splitting those atoms in a reactor core, we release lots of neutrons. Some of those neutrons will go on to cause more fission events, is what we call. But a byproduct of all of that fissioning is a lot of heat, because a lot of radiation is given off. Um, some of that is thermal radiation, which we can use to heat a coolant. Um, and some of that is, you know, uh, gamma radiation as well. Most of that is, or if not all of that, is absorbed by the reactor core material, so it's shielding it. 
Um, so there is a very high, what we call a flux of neutrons in the reactor core. And in the UK's nuclear reactors, we've always used graphite as a material which slows the speed of the neutrons in the reactor core. And, and in doing so, we call that thermalization. That increases the likelihood of the neutron to go on and cause a further fission. So it makes the efficiency of, of the nuclear reaction higher. But in sticking a load of graphite in a reactor core, just over 1% of the graphite is non-radioactive isotope of carbon-13. The most common isotope is carbon-12. So 99% of the graphite notionally is carbon-12, with 1% is carbon-13. Um, but that carbon-13, when it's exposed to a high-intensity dose of neutrons for many decades, can then pick up an extra neutron and can be transmuted to carbon-14, which is the radioactive isotope. So you can think of our reactors through life have uh, the graphite has picked up energy and it has a lot of residual energy and that energy actually takes a long time to decay away. So the half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,000 years. Does that mean that the half-life of one of these diamond batteries would be the same? Exactly. Yeah, you, could, you can start to think about a, a very small, low-output battery which, which could last longer than the rest of what we have ahead of us in terms of human civilization. You can be pessimistic. Some people are and say, well, we might not last 100 years. Uh, I would like to think we're going to last at least 5,000 years. So Tom started explaining it there, but I wanted to get a proper handle on how this nuclear waste is turned into batteries. So I met up with Dr. Liam Payne, whose PhD was key to getting this project started. The findings of my PhD were the sort of formation of the project because we found that the carbon-14 in the graphite can be removed selectively. If you oxidise the graphite, so if you heat it up in the presence of um, oxidising species, most of the time we use air. You don't need any sort of specialist equipment, just some way of heating it. So when you oxidise it in, in air, you produce CO and CO2, and so the carbon-14 is, is present in that gas. And so then that formulated a hypothesis that well, if you can remove it, can you find a better use for it? Yeah, the first stage is obviously the same. You, you oxidise your graphite, you get CO, CO2. Um, what you then want to do is convert that into methane. Uh, there's a process called the Sabatia process, where basically you heat up the CO2 in the presence, presence of hydrogen and a catalyst, and it'll convert it into methane and water, so that you can use this methane to grow diamond in, in a diamond reactor that we have at the University of Bristol. There's a very large research group in the chemistry department that make diamonds day in, day out um, for different purposes. You know, one is that they want to use it for tools. So it's obviously a very hard substance. The, the main focus so far has been on this electronics use, making solar panels using diamonds, um, where you can collect thermal energy, heat, um, and convert it to electricity with the aid of diamond. I'm starting to see how this idea is formed now. When this is your every day, then these disparate areas of science don't seem so distant. But these aren't standard AA batteries in, in any sense. To picture them, you need to think of incredibly thin wafers of diamond, 15 microns thick. They could be layered to make it into a cylindrical shape or plane and, and combined with others to generate more power. And don't forget that there's these two layers. There's the layer with the carbon-14 in it, where all the radioactive material is, and then there's the outer layer with no radioactive material at all. But how does that function as a battery? The diamond battery technology has no moving parts. It's a very simple device. What happens is the, you incorporate radiation. So in this case, CAM14 is a beta emitter. So it emits what is essentially an electron. 
a high-energy electron. If you have the right diamond structure in place, the, the, this emission of an electron will then generate secondary electrons in the diamond, and then it will generate more secondary electrons. So basically you get a cascade effect. If you have collecting plates, so basically metal contacts in the diamond, under load, you get direct current generation. So you have contacts on either side, so obviously one negative, one positive. Under a load, you generate direct current. The currents we generate are obviously very small. You're not going to be able to power a light bulb straight off it. It's linked with um, electronics, so low power electronics that can capture the, the charge generated in, in what is essentially a capacitor. So you have this capacitor that's being constantly charged which will then discharge at set intervals to power whatever device it is. One of those suggested applications for this technology is to use it for long-distance spaceflight. I mean, really long-distance spaceflight. Typically, they're using uh, a nuclear reactor as a heat source in space. Uh, like Mark Watney in The Martian. That's right, an RTG. That usually has thermoelectrics powering it, but sometimes they are thermionics. Uh, in The Martian, they have a... Uh, a, you know, a thermal generator, which is plutonium-242. So it's, it's isotopically separated plutonium, and it, it gives off heat because it's constantly decaying. But it's probably the most expensive substance you could imagine. But at the same time, it is the heaviest substance <laughs> you can imagine. And you've got to pay for that in terms of payload to get it into space. So by comparison, the diamond, which is, you know, carbon-12, carbon-14, layered in a device... Uh, it's so like by comparison, it's, it's a no-brainer in terms of payload for getting it into space. Uh, but I think the exciting thing about uh, this technology is that it provides a triple charge, uh, which means that uh, if you're sending a probe on a long journey, for example, uh, you want to put everything to sleep, or almost to sleep, uh, then uh, having uh, this sort of power source integrated into the, ele the onboard electronics uh, would be you know, remarkably useful. CubeSats uh, is the concept that um, you can have these tiny satellites which, which may be, each one is the size of a mobile phone. They're extremely light and small and they're very rudimentary in terms of what their capability is. But with a satellite that goes up to deploy CubeSats, they may deploy thousands at one time and they're dispersed, a bit like dust might disperse, into an orbit around the Earth and they're used for near-Earth observation. So this is a technology that lots of people are interested in because it makes doing satellite observation much more accessible to the public because it's much cheaper to do that. Um, but each device will require a small power source, you know, to, 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 to keep it going for long periods of time. Um, and so, you know, diamond batteries could really feed into that. Stephen Hawking and Yori Milner recently talking about sending tiny spacecraft off to Alpha Centauri to look at this potential Earth 2. Is, is that the kind of use for this? Indeed, yes, most definitely. I, I think that would be a perfect use for it because it, it wouldn't necessarily be a very large probe, um, but they would probably want to put it to sleep for quite a long time. And so this would be the technology, the, ba the storage battery technology to, uh, to power that. When I looked online to see what the public response to this story was, one of the most common responses was, diamonds, aren't they really expensive? Here's Tom Scott. It's one of the most common misconceptions. The truth of it is, it's extremely cheap to make synthetic diamond. Uh, 
So whereas an, a natural diamond, which has got lots of impurities and defects and dopants, may cost you hundreds to thousands of pounds, we can actually make wafers of diamonds for five to ten pounds for a single wafer. These diamonds aren't as expensive as the diamonds that we find naturally occurring. But they're not exactly bargain bin batteries, are they? Then again, that isn't really the purpose of this. What we're talking about here is making incredibly long-life batteries, thousands of years potentially, and at the same time reducing our nuclear waste. And in itself, that could save a country billions of pounds. Here's Liam Payne again to explain how. So in the UK, waste is split into different categories. So you have low level, intermediate level and high level. Currently, the graphite waste sits at intermediate level waste, mainly due to CAM14. If you could get, so theoretically, and you know, in the, in the, in the nicest scenario is, we could remove the CAM14 from the graphite, put it to a better use, and just leave waste, which is less active, and also the, the remaining radioactivity also decays over a much shorter period of time. So in, in, in graphite, you have CAM14, which is 6,000 years, the major isotope after that is, is cobalt-60 and tritium, and they have a half-life of 12 and 6 years, approximately. So over short periods, they, they disappear. So if you get the CAM-14 off, there's a potential you could reduce it to low-level waste. That raises a question. How many batteries do we need to be making to make a significant impact on the nuclear waste? So yeah, this is a question that we, we don't know the answer to yet. We don't know the ideal concentration of CAM14 in a battery because you'll get to a point where adding more and more won't make it any better because it, it inherently it'll be self-shielding. So the more diamonds you put in with CAM14, the, the, the CAM14 right in the middle may not reach it to the, to the diamond layer where you want your electrons yeah. to be generated. Okay. So there'll be an optimum thickness, but also in that thickness there'll be an optimum concentration. Yeah. So the answer is we don't know how many it would make. But the difference between intermediate level waste and low level waste is about £40,000 per cubic metre. Wow, okay. So you're talking very big savings if you even, if you just get a little bit of it down, that's a significant saving. Now, I just want to put the brakes on a little bit here because when we see a headline uh, in the press or a story in the press about a new technology which is going to solve a major problem, or in this case, two really big problems, it's very tempting to jump on it and want to believe that it's, it's just that the technology is just around the corner and changing the world very soon. But that's not really how cutting-edge science works. We've all seen front-page headlines of a new cure for cancer. But how many of those cures for whichever cancer have made it into the hospitals, into our healthcare system? You know, it takes a long time. The, the point where these stories reach the media is often where the scientists have made a major breakthrough, but they need more funding to take the research to the next level, to get to that proof of concept, to get to the point where they can do more trials to make sure that it works. Because there's a long way from proving a cure for something, having a breakthrough in a lab, to it actually being in our hospitals, on our spacecraft. Whatever that breakthrough is, whatever that technology is, whatever that science is, the scientific process is a long road for these major breakthroughs. 
I, I say I'm putting the brakes on, but really what I mean is I don't want to make any promises now. I'd love to be making promises. But I think that now, perhaps more than ever, accuracy in the way we report things is really important, particularly when it comes to science. And I asked Liam where the project is now and how far it is from there to us actually seeing this diamond technology working in our lives. And again, you'll hear that spirit of collaboration from around the world that's working on this project. So the project is, is only just starting. So at the moment, we're at a very low level. We're, we're sort of proof of principle. We've done a very early testing where we have um, radiation sources and diamond as separate layers so basically we have one on top of the other as opposed to what we want to do is have them as one complete structure um, and we've proven that you know you can get some some results out of them you know you, we have we have proof of principle results and so this this project basically aims to advance that by the end of the three years is basically to have a proof of principle prototype so this is not to say that we've gone to a nuclear reactor we've got the graphite waste out we've converted it is basically to prove that the individual steps are, are feasible okay. and so at the university through my PhD we've obviously done I've obviously done some graphite research and proven that you can get cam 14 out of graphite we still have some graphite remaining from that that's um, that we can use to process on a small scale to prove that we can get cam 14 methane another step is to prove that if you put cam 14 into a diamond then you generate a current that can be collected and used in a meaningful manner what, what's nice is that we are not solely reliant upon getting carbon-14 methane from a nuclear waste to generate a diamond battery. There is an alternative in where you dope a diamond using nitrogen-14, so the naturally occurring isotope, and then irradiate the whole diamond in a, in a test reactor, which then converts it to cam 14 the isotopic purity is obviously a lot lower, so it's not an ideal situation, but as proof of principle for the, for the technology, we can do that. And we have collaborators in Japan who have a test reactor who are willing to let us place diamonds in there to irradiate them to convert to CAM-14. So we have sort of two separate work streams. In the three years, we expect to be able to make a prototype using nitrogen-doped diamond, but also to prove that we can get CAM-14 out in a usable form and also to enrich it, because obviously it comes out in quite a low concentration. We don't want that. We want basically just CAM14 and not, because when you oxidise it, you're not selectively oxidising for just CAM14. Carbon 13 and CAM12 will come out as well. So we obviously need to enrich that. And we have collaborators in South Korea who have been successful in enriching CAM13 from CAM12 up to sort of 97%. And they, they envisage that they'd be able to do similar things with CAM14 which is very useful. So this is a, a large international project that we've just started. Um, and by the end of it, we, we'd hope to have a prototype. And then from then on, you know, that's when you start having this, the next discussions is in, you know, when you're two and a half years into the project, you start approaching the, the site license companies, so the people who actually own the waste to say, can we start, you know, we're proving this. Can we, can we have a bit more to prove it with, please? Yeah. Okay, so hopefully the three years of funding that they've got will see all that happen. And who knows how long it is from then until we start seeing these diamond batteries in the real world. Looking online, most, if not all, of the articles about this new technology are accurate in the way they report the science. I was expecting to find fear-driven articles and comments. You know, those people who have an automatic fear to the word nuclear. In fact, I had to dig quite deep to find those views. 
I did, in the end, on a website called treehugger.com. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love trees, but treehugger.com isn't one of my bookmarks. The article itself is neutral on the issue, but in the comments you'll find people worrying about possible uses for the carbon-14 in terrorism, as well as outright rejection of the idea simply because it uses nuclear waste. So is it safe? The reason we use CAM-14 is that it's a beta emitter. So out of the, the sort of radiation you can get you alpha, beta, gamma. Beta is inherently the most safe. It has the lowest sort of penetration energy. Um, and so a simple bit of paper would shield you against CAM-14 completely. Also, CAM-14 is widely found in the environment anyway. Um, it's produced all the time in the, in the upper atmosphere from cosmic ray radiation. Uh, you know, there were large quantities produced during the weapons testing era. And so we believe that it's, it's inherently safe. And because we're surrounding the CAM-14 with non-active diamond, you would detect no radiation on the outside of these devices at all. And so we have this purpose. And then, and then obviously the question then becomes to disposal. You know, at some point, you may need to get rid of these. Yes, we understand that we will need to dispose of them, but we're not generating new radioactive waste. This is waste that's already accounted for. We're just trying to make, have a purpose for it. For, even if we only have a purpose for 100 years, then that's 100 years more stuff we've got out of it than it would have done originally. What it would have been originally as destination is just straight into the ground in a geological disposal facility. If I'm fitted with a pacemaker and I'm going to live 20, 30, however many years I'm going to live, it's not going to be as many as this battery is going to last. What happens to that diamond if I'm cremated? The answer is we don't necessarily know because we, it depends on the temperatures and stuff. But it, worst case is obviously you you oxidise your diamond if your temperatures are high enough and you release CO2 containing this CAM-14. The actual effect of the environment surrounding it would be very small because it's going to be very low concentrations to begin with. And as soon as it hits you know, the air, it just disperses and, and is diluted very quickly. And you wouldn't notice a significant change in the, in the background levels because it's just there all the time. The vast majority of the questions that I found online, of the comments that I found online, were hugely positive. You know, suggestions of where the technology could go, what, what the technology could do for us, uh, ways of using it, and excitement about the potential, really. And, and one or two of the questions were from people with a far deeper insight into the way these things work. Here's one of them, which I put to Liam. Carbon-14 decays to nitrogen, and nitrogen is a dopant in diamond. It accumulates 140 parts per million of nitrogen per year and would radically change the characteristics of any carbon semiconductor. So yeah, one of the problems with, with this technology is that when carbon-14 decays, it, it decays into nitrogen. And nitrogen is not something you particularly want in diamond electronics. But for our device, the radioactive diamond, so where the CAM-14 is, is not the one producing the electronic bit of it. That's, that, that happens in the non-active layer. So yeah, we understand that during decay, you know, your CAM-14 will decay to nitrogen and that will fill this diamond. But it shouldn't affect the electronics, the, the electrical properties, because the electrical properties are related to the, the non-active diamond, where there is no nitrogen or, or a very selective concentration of nitrogen. And so, yeah, you will get this decay, but it shouldn't affect the lifetime. You know, it may affect it over 
hundreds of years or thousands of years, but in the short term, i.e. for their usefulness in you know, the couple of hundred year range, it shouldn't make a difference at all. Part of the University of Bristol research is looking at deliberately introducing nitrogen into diamond to see what effect it has. And so it's not, we're just guessing. We have results that show you can go up to a couple of hundred ppm and it has no effect or very little effect. Okay, if they can get round that problem and make these batteries last for thousands of years, then my excitement about this is literally astronomical. I mean, just imagine the possibilities. The Voyager spacecraft is the furthest reach of humanity at the moment, out there in interstellar space. Just imagine those tiny spacecraft that Stephen Hawking and Yuri Milner are talking about, sending to Alpha Centauri and beyond looking for Earth 2, orbiting exoplanets, looking for signs of life out there around other stars, powered by these radioactive diamond batteries. I'd like to thank Professor Tom Scott, Dr Neil Fox and Dr Liam Payne, not only for talking to me, but for the wonderful work that they're doing. I wish them all the best with this amazing piece of research. Obviously, the potential is huge, and it is in very safe hands. If we do find life on other planets, as a result of spacecraft powered by radioactive diamonds, if you find yourself fitted with a pacemaker powered by a battery which will outlast you by several centuries then you know where it started. I'd also like to thank Physics World for allowing me to do this podcast. I've learnt a huge amount and I've met some really brilliant people. Physics World podcast will be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics, but there's no need to wait until then. Head to physicsworld.com for up-to-the-minute physics news and maybe if there's something that intrigues you, let us know because I'd love to do all this again for some other piece of mind-blowing research. Thank you for listening. Physics World.